Welcome back to another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip and Podcast. I am your host uh, for this episode, Benji Backer, President and Founder of the American Conservation Coalition and the Conservation Coalition, joined here by David Hardy, who is the President and COO of Orsted Offshore North America. David, it's great to be here. Tell us where we are and what you do for Orsted. Yeah, thanks, Benji. Thanks for inviting me out here. We're in beautiful Boston Commons Garden, right in downtown Boston on a beautiful sunny October, October day. afternoon. Uh, you know, we're taking advantage of, uh, of the great weather and making sure we have our safe uh, COVID six feet, but uh, let's hopefully have a good conversation. Um, I can answer the second question. You know, I, I um, am the president and COO of Orsted Offshore North America, as you said, um, and I'm responsible for the development, construction, and operations of our wind farms here in, in North America. Well, I had, I mean, honestly, one of the highlights of my year, which, you know, this year has been crazy, but one of the highlights of my year was touring this offshore wind facility off the shores of Block Island and just seeing the immense, just sheer awe of these five turbines that at construction were what I learned the largest in the world at the time. And they power the entire island of Block Island and 17,000 homes in Rhode Island. And it got the island off of diesel that was being shipped over on boats. I mean, it's just an incredible story. What is it like to be a part of that? And, and why is offshore wind so important just to start out with? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think it, maybe it's helpful to tell you a little bit about myself and sure. my journey. Yeah. You know, about uh, 10, 11 years ago, I, I was, you know, working in high tech industrial and had a good career path moving and, and some circumstances led to me kind of looking for a new role. And I really thought about you know, what, what was I passionate about? And, and I kind of put my passions ahead of power or, or economic benefit. And I, I decided that I really wanted to pursue a career in, in renewable energy. And, and so I kind of was looking around at solar, wind, smart grid, et cetera, and ended up networking into the, into the wind industry and have spent, like I said, 11 years or so working in onshore wind around the world, probably built 15 gigawatts of wind farms in one form or another probably 30 plus countries um, and then I saw this offshore wind wave happening and wanted to be a part of it especially in the US because it's just we're just at the beginning now as you said this mm. wind farm you went and visited is 30 megawatts five turbines and it's it's amazing to see how big yeah. these turbines are and how meaningful this project is but but 30 megawatts is, is is pretty small by big by big US energy standards and so you know we at Orsted now um, you know, we have 3,000 megawatts of awarded contracts just in the U.S. that we're that we're going to build over the next two to four years, um, and and of course we're bidding on future projects and expect this market to really really grow over time. So, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, it's it seems like it's at the forefront of this incredible revolution that could happen in terms of growing the offshore wind kind of industry in the United States, but there seems to be it seems like the United States is lagging behind in a lot of ways. We learned that Europe and, and Asia have really started to embrace this technology and they've done it you know, decades prior and we're just getting started now and it's also taking a long time to get these projects off the ground. Why has it 
you know, how, why has it been so like difficult to get these projects off the ground and why is the United States just starting to get into this and how can we kind of reverse that? Yeah, I mean, maybe a little context first. So you, you alluded to the fact that in Europe we have about 22,000 megawatts of, of offshore wind already and in Asia even we have 7,000 megawatts and Orsted is the, the world's market leader. We have about 30% market share globally so we've by the end of this year we'll have about 8,000 megawatts installed. Um, you know, roughly kind of 30% yeah. of that number, those numbers I just said. That's, that's Plus we have the 30 megawatts here, which is the only operating wind farm in the U.S. Um, but what, what you saw happening was the, the development of the technology and the development of the supply chain in Europe really started to drive the pricing down. Mm. And you have, in Europe, you have a very uh, high density of population, right? And so although there's been pretty good growth in onshore wind and solar in different markets in Germany and Spain and other parts of Europe, you, you start to get a little, start to run out of land, quite frankly. And offshore is, is one of the places where you can really have a major impact and you can really replace nuclear power plants or big coal plants um, with offshore. And offshore, the wind resource is also better. So you have a it's something called a, a capacity factor. is basically a synonym for, for efficiency. You have a much higher capacity factor in offshore, and it becomes a little, a lot less intermittent than onshore renewables. The turbine technologies also makes makes for higher reliability as well. So you have this conflux of things happening. You have, you know, the 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 EU. Uh, you know, climate action plan for 2020, you have the price coming down, you have, um, you know, big demand in, in Europe on the coast and quite frankly on the east coast of the U.S., which is what's what's driving demand here. And, and quite frankly, there's a, there's a lot of economic benefits for, for right. offshore wind as well. I mean, we sometimes, I have a, a very conservative father-in-law and he kind of sometimes teases me about the price of offshore wind and, and I tell him like, hey, we can make it cheaper, but we're building ports, we're building mm -hmm. factories, we're hiring, uh, we're, we're training workforces, we're, we're doing research. So a lot of the cost right now is in the startup of this new industry, but the prices will, will come down. You can see already in onshore solar, onshore wind, the, the game is over um, compared to, 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 to fossil fuel, you know, coal and natural gas, onshore renewables are already on par or, or beating those those uh, those solutions. And offshore is just a little bit behind on the cost curve and we'll get there, but, but we bring the advantage of scale. We can really put a lot of megawatts in the water near the load centers of, of the U.S. East Coast, you know, Philly, New York, um, Boston, et cetera. So it's, well, it's going to be explosive. For sure. Well, getting those projects off the ground, we were learning that there was, what, a seven-year permitting process? Right now, the, the projects are, are, are sitting out in federal waters, and so you've got this federal NEPA process that we have to go through, and and you know it's 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 arduous. I mean, we it's probably for the good uh, of the environment that we're making sure everything everything works, uh, but we have to spend a year or two at least um, doing surveys and building our what's called a COP plan, our construction and operation plan, and we we produce a stack of paper, you know, yay thick consultants and our own engineers and, and then we submit that to to the federal agency they review this cop application first they kind of review it for completeness and that's supposed to take around you know six months and then it's at least a two-year process where they review the application and they engage with stakeholders and then they eventually can give you your, your 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 federal permit and the challenge has been that right now there's 
no commercial scale offshore wind farms in America, even mm. though there's 6,000 megawatts of wind farms that have awarded power uh, offtake from the states, no, no federal permit has been, has been granted yet. So one of our competitors, Vineyard Wind, is very, hopefully very close to the end. We hope by kind of by the end of the year, they'll be the first large scale project to have a, a, a federal permit. But after that, it's it's a very slow process, and so some of our um, permit applications we put in a year ago, and we haven't even started that two-year clock yet. So. Wow. So do you think that that can go faster once this technology is put into place a little bit more rapidly in terms of like more companies doing it, more projects happening? Do you think that process can speed up, or do you think it's always going to be that difficult to get these projects off the ground? In fairness to the government, you know, they I think they're they wanted to do it right. So yeah. the offshore wind in the U.S. kind of picked up faster than people expected, and so they kind of put a pause on the federal permitting process in order to do a what's called a cumulative impact study. So they wanted to see not just like what's the impact of this one wind farm, but what's what's the impact of the cumulative effect of all these wind farms? And so even the federal government right now is assuming, I think in that study they assumed 22 gigawatts, so 22,000 megawatts of wind between now and like 2030 or 2035. Wow. So they expect a lot of power to come on. And they're, they they wanted to do this cumulative review and they, they submitted um, kind of preliminary feedback on the cumulative study in June and then we were hopeful that once that cumulative impact was was evaluated, that they would restart the permitting process for everybody that's in the queue. And we at Orsted, we have the number one, two, and four queue positions, so we're anxious to get our to get our projects, you know, started in this in, in this federal NEPA process. But right now we haven't we haven't restarted yet, and we're still there's still some discussion about you know wanting to see the full cumulative impact study come to a conclusion before before uh, before starting any new new wind uh, federal permitting. Back to your question, I think once uh, once the process gets started, once we've got some ground rules from the first one or two projects, then everyone will kind of conform, and hopefully, it's easier for the federal government to do its do its studies, and they're just looking for individual project deviations. But we've got a bunch of standards, you know, already in place. So. Well, that makes sense that they're thinking about it that in depth, and then. On that, similar, on that similar note, there's kind of the stereotype, and we talked about it on the tour, but there's a stereotype that offshore wind or wind in general is really harmful to the, to the natural world in terms of you know, the marine life and the bird life. And you guys are doing a lot to study that. Can you talk a little bit about why that stereotype is or isn't true, and then also what you're doing to combat it? Yeah, first, not to be too cheeky, but coal emissions are also pretty bad for the for the wildlife. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, I think it's a very fair point. In general, you know, we we we're we're pretty proud of the fact that we're producing clean renewable energy uh, through through our through our wind farms. But there there for sure needs to be a full study of the environmental impacts to sea life other marine uh, users, et cetera, ocean users, et cetera. And this COP process that I described, it's very, very robust. We do like two years worth of studies before we before we even submit the before we even submit the application. And of course we're following all the guidelines and we're we're investing heavily. We've got partnerships, for example, uh, with URI and Woods Hole uh, mm. Ocean Oceanographic Institute and um, the state of New New Jersey University and, and a few other um, uh, 
uh, academic institutions where we're investing in, in in new technology to do like passive monitoring, for example, of the of the right whales, uh, Atlantic right whales, which are endangered species up in this part of a part of the ocean. And you know, we we take all all these environmental concerns like very very seriously. This is our core business, so right. we we want to do very um, very sustainable wind development doesn't do us any good to build one wind farm and and do it in a cheap way and and kind of uh, abuse the environment but we want to be building wind farms for the next you know 20 30 years so so we take all this environmental impact very very seriously and we're we've got marine biologists on our staff we've got a huge marine affairs organization that's you know talking to fishermen and we're, we're really trying to be a, a partner in the ocean and and and, and just bring this this uh, this technology to bear in a in a smart and, and uh, sustainable way. Well, it, it was really impressive to see when we were out there, actually how the the wind you know facility was housing marine life. I mean, there were you know we were learning about the schools of fish that really enjoy being around it. We were seeing birds like like sitting and living on the wind turbines and. It just was very much the opposite <laughs> of what you oftentimes hear. And of course, there's always a trade-off with every energy source, and so that, to your point, is, is very, very much a fair thing to think about. But I was really surprised, and you know, our, Brian, the, the, the manager, talked about how there's really minimal impacts on the environment out there in terms of the natural world, and that you guys are doing some incredible studying with innovative technology to look at bird migration patterns and studying that. And what has been found is that there really isn't much of an impact on the animal life. And then on top of that, you have 100% renewable energy. So kind of with that stereotype, and, it, and it's, I mean, you said you have a father-in-law that might even have that stereotype. I don't know. If, I don't know if he does, but when you hear people say bird graveyards, or they, you know, they say these things that aren't true, where do you think that comes from? And is there a way to really prove to people that this isn't that bad on on the natural world? And actually, it's got a huge net positive. Yeah, I mean, for sure, the science points to the opposite. I mean, we do tons and tons of scientific study on birds, on marine impact on fish fish impact and the science for sure points to the fact that there's not a meaningful negative impact on on on, uh, on marine life or on on other um, animal life etc we probably need to do a better job getting our message out because i think sometimes you know people just you know they, they just don't know and and they hear things and there's people who are against it for whatever reason you know uh, economic reasons or other things and, and they propagate some of these falsehoods i think you see it on the onshore side you definitely see it on the offshore side but you know we try to let the data the data speak and right so when we're in discussions with the permitting agencies or with the fishermen we bring the data and show them um, you know the facts basically and as you said we found that block island now has been in operation for for four years and we found that the sport fishermen love it i mean they, they life is better now they're catching we were taken out by a sport fisherman who loves stripers, it stripers <laughs> more yeah. uh, bluefish you know the the, the the sport fishing has gone up not mm-hmm. to mention tourism people are not dissuaded at all you know being on the beaches at, at block island and people even go out on boat tours you know through to see the wind farms and so there's just a lot of misinformation out there i think that, that we've got to work on combating uh through our through our communications and, and, and pr work yeah and i think it's really important and i think that pr and comms part is really important but it also takes people 
in, in politics to be telling the truth about it, right? And I think that that matters a lot. To switch gears for a second, we learned on the tour that it was a Republican governor in at the state level who thought that it would be a great idea to do this project off the coast of Rhode Island. And he worked with the company and the local community. And it was like this awesome public-private partnership with both sides of the aisle being engaged. And now it's an incredibly successful project. The island is bought in, the, you know, the mainland is bought in, the, the region's bought in because it's reaping the benefits. And then of course, I'm sure the state government's happy about it and the company's happy about it. Can you talk a little bit about how that process worked? I know that that was before you came to Orsted, but can you talk a little bit about that process and also the importance of kind of this public-private partnership and working across those different industries to get something that's done? Yeah, it's really a great question. You know, my, my opinion, it, um, you know, offshore wind is not a, shouldn't be a partisan thing. I mean, I think it's sometimes people think it's like, oh, this green, you know, tree hugging kind of thing. The fact of the matter is, is it's, we talked about already, it's economically viable, you know, from the, from the price of power, you know, c coming down over time. Stable power prices, yeah. which was a problem from yeah. what I heard. For sure, there, you, you, in, in these uh, agreements that we're making with the states, we give a fixed price for 25 years. So they wow. have no risk to inflation. They have no risk to commodities, mm. et cetera. You know, it's, it's, it's very stable. Um, the second is the, the, the job creation part of it. You know, whether, whether you're leaning left or right, I'm, I'm indifferent on that. But you can't deny the, the economic benefits of a new industry to the U.S. and the jobs that are going to be created. And this, is, this isn't just any old job. This is like infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We're building ports. We're producing, you know, heavy, you know, we need to build specialized ships, uh, so ports, we, we're building offshore structures. So it's not just the, the states where the wind farms are gonna be built, but we're gonna leverage Gulf, Gulf Coast, you know, fabricators in Texas and Louisiana that have worked in oil and gas offshore. They can now build offshore structures for, for the offshore uh, wind industry. And, you know, those parts of the country are, predominantly a, a little more conservative right. than maybe other parts of the country that where, where the wind farms are being built. Uh, so, and then, like I said, you know, the steel for the towers and monopiles will eventually probably come from steel mills in the Midwest. And there's, there's, you know, there's cement and there's other, you know, fabricate metal fabricating work. And eventually we'll get the full supply chain over here where we're building, you know, the big nacelles with gearboxes and electric yep. generators and all that activity. So, so it's it's not a partisan it's not a partisan thing really. I mean, right. We're talking about you know good for the environment, good economic benefits, uh, infrastructure. Um, you know we're we're doing a ton of uh, port infrastructure and and, and other uh, other works to to bring up the, the to bring to revitalize you know places that that are underprivileged right now and, and, and kind of bring new new economic benefits there on the on the public private partnership side it definitely right now is being driven primarily by the states and the states are in one form or another kind of contributing of course in some cases um, you know they're probably paying a little bit higher power price than they would otherwise have to in order to bring this industry to bear but also to bring the economic benefits to their and it's state. a long-term investment yeah so they're making the investment now right. to pull in the supply chain and and then over time just like in Europe when the prices come down um, then 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 it's just all plus 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 I think Block Island was even more unique I mean because of the 
the, the five diesels and the fact they weren't even connected to the grid on onshore so they were totally on an island out there electric island as well totally reliant on the on the diesel generators now they're actually connected by a wire uh, back to by a cable back to, to Rhode Island and so the wind farms actually produce all the power for Rhode Island but they also produce power back to to the state of Rhode Island and, and in you know cases where there's no wind the, the, the the power flows flows the other way. Right. They've got internet that they never had before. They've got other benefits, and you know, quite frankly, we we paid for that. You know, we dredged right. the the line, we put the cable in, etc. So, um, so, and there's a lot of those kind of soft benefits that come from from offshore wind. So. Well, and, and it sounds like the island has really been bought into the process, and they are really excited about the benefits and the lower energy prices, the jobs that have been created, the stability. You know, with things like Wi-Fi or yeah. energy prices in general. I mean, those are important things to communities, especially now. And you to be a vibrant community for tourism or for whatever, which Block Island obviously relies on tourism a lot. You need to have those, you know, simple things like good Wi-Fi, low energy prices, reliable energy in general. It sounded like there when there was a storm, like they were still for three days, they were still able to to get the power that they needed, and, and that's something that you oftentimes see publicly as a little bit overlooked I think when it comes to wind power I mean we've we've traveled across the country on this electric collection road trip and we've seen Midwestern you know farmers and you know business people just so enthusiastic about the potential of wind in their communities and that's obviously at a much smaller scale but they know the economic benefit they know the environmental benefit and you see that you know three of the top five wind states are conservative states, and obviously you know there's a Republican governor in Rhode Island, and you know Democrats are embracing it here too. So it's got this potential building, to be bipartisan. Yeah, we're building a project in Maryland right now. It's got a Republican governor in Maryland as well, who's generally supportive of, of offshore wind, and and, um, and so I think you know again I, I don't think this should be a, a partisan thing. I think the the economic benefits and the environmental benefits you know speak for themselves. So. so so to scale this, what is the potential of the scale of offshore wind for the United States in layman's terms? And then also, what is the biggest barrier to getting there? Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the long term, it's going to happen, right? It's it's kind of inevitable because you don't have other options, really. Uh, offshore is already the fastest growing renewable sector. Um, the, you start to see already adjacencies in Europe where they're building now green hydrogen from the offshore wind. They're, of course, they actually we just announced uh, a green ammonia pro project. Ammonia is used as a fertilizer, and now you can produce it, you know, for, in, in a green way. Um, and so there's all these adjacencies that, 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 will, that will come. Um, but just in the U.S. on the East Coast, I think it's, you know, there's different studies, but it's predicted that there would be like 30 gigawatts of offshore wind. Uh, by 2030, 2035, maybe. And do you know, like, approximately what that would power? Yeah, it's a good question. A ballpark, I, a ballpark. I, we say that our 8 gigawatts are powering 15 million homes, so three to four times that. Um, is, it's we'll do the math afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, and, um, and, and so, I mean, it could be, it could be a, a, a super meaningful, uh, you know, contributor to, to the overall energy grid. Um, I, and that's massive. Yeah. And the other point is, you know, we talk about, I'm not afraid to say the price is a little bit high now, but when we talk about the price being high, let me give you a little context again for sure. Lehman's term. In New York, um, NYSERDA is the government agency that's kind of administering their offshore wind program. They've awarded 
1,700 megawatts, so 1,700 megawatts of, um, of offshore wind. And they've calculated that with the awards they've already given, that it's about 79 cents per household of increase for, for offshore wind. So 79 cents. Three gumballs. Yeah, 79 cents a month. I, I don't know. That's a third of a Starbucks coffee or, you know, one Dunkin' Donut or depending on what your, what your passion is. It's, we're, we're a Dunkin' Donut's that cheap? We're, we're, not putting a, <laughs> we're not putting a big, big burden on, on households, right? And this is, this is the worst it's going to be, right? It's yeah. only going to go down from here. So, um, so I, you know, I think it's a good investment for, for, the, for the country and for these states. And I think these governors see that. They see the jobs, you know, especially now with COVID. Um, it's a massive opportunity. So. And then what, to, what's the biggest barrier to, to seeing that impact to, yeah. to, to the, what the potential could be? Yeah, I mean, again, I started to answer this, and you're, you're right, I got distracted. But <laughs> <laughs> Was it the geese in the background? or? <laughs> Uh, the, the long run, we think we think it's going to happen. In the right. short term, it's it's basically this federal permitting. You know, the challenge mm. is that this is this is expensive stuff. You know, we've got to invest a lot to to build these projects. And the difference between a conventional fossil uh, power plant is the capex, the the capital expense that you put in is is kind of half the cost, and then you and then you have fuel for the whole rest of the life of the of the power plant. In our case, we have no fuel, so the capex is, is really high price. And in order to to make that investment in the in the capex, you've got to have certainty that the projects are going to go. We're, we're you know, and then on top of that, we're doing the the, the uh, port infrastructure, the supply chain development. So we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars. We're building ships. We're doing all this stuff. I think there was a. A statement recently that there's 166 billion dollars of economic benefit tied up right now on hold waiting for permitting certainty and as soon as we have permitting certainty we'll, we'll start writing the checks and we'll start moving all these things forward but of course it doesn't make sense it's not prudent uh, for for a business to to spend millions of dollars and then and then it, and then it not nothing happened and you just crumble those dollar bills up and light them on fire so we're, we're trying to find that balance of keeping this industry moving forward but doing it in a, in a prudent way until we have more certainty around you know around the federal permitting process well it seems like like yes there needs to be a permitting process and yes there needs to be oversight on it but it seems like this kind of long-term process is oftentimes redundant in certain ways and that there's probably ways to streamline it insert especially once more projects get off the ground and you can see what works and what doesn't work and and where there needs to be attention uh, given and where there doesn't need to be attention given but the fact that that's the biggest hurdle means that there needs to be some improvement there at some point and we have a dog friend here that's gonna be the best part of this this podcast for sure um, <laughs> so we do. We are running out of time, and, and I think the dog was our warning. Um, but we the cue the dog. We have this at every podcast. Don't worry about it. Um, I, I do want to ask: What's something that you wish people knew about either the wind wind industry or the offshore wind industry that they might not know? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think um, you know when I when I talk to people, I, I always highlight. Uh, it, it depends who I'm talking to, but I mean, first off, it's going to be huge. That's one thing that everybody needs to understand. And we're, we're building these wind farms, you know, pretty far offshore. There may be some small visual impact on the horizon. They're definitely not as close as those Block Island wind farms as you saw, an average, you know, 20 miles or so offshore. Um, and we just have all this resource out there. So you have all this potential. Uh, but I, I really think the thing that 
that, that I explain to people is the amount of kind of soft benefits that we're that we're bringing. We're not just building clean, green, renewable energy offshore. This port infrastructure, the supply chain development, the we we, we have these um, you know local benefits plans where we're you know investing in. In, uh, in, in, in training programs, we're investing in, you know, kind of uh, in communities that are affected by the onshore cable route, and, and it's, it really adds up to a lot. So we're doing more than just creating uh, green energy, we're, we're, we're actually doing a lot to improve the infrastructure and livelihood of these communities that are going to be affected by or, or impacted by the offshore wind, and we're creating uh, operation and maintenance hubs, we're creating piers, we're building ships, and so it's just so much more than just the wind farm sitting offshore. There's just so much more that we're doing. And, you know, look, this is this is a, one of the few new in, new American industries that, that we can point to that, that, that could, be a, could be a massive impact on our on our society and, and, and where the U.S. could be a leader. Right now, we're, we're definitely a lagger, but we need energy independence. We need to be a leader on the, you know, the benefits of, of clean energy from the global warming standpoint, whether you're way into that or not, you know, it, it still it matters. It, it still matters. Um, and, and, and then it's just, uh, it's a great economic benefit. I actually think that the fact that the first time that climate change got brought up being this far into it shows that there are so many other benefits. Like we didn't even talk about the benefit to climate. We were talking about the economic benefit, the other environmental benefits, the job, you know, we were talking about all these other benefits and we totally even forgot about the massive benefit that it has to climate change. And I just think that it speaks to the power of offshore wind. And I mean, I, I think as an organization, we've always been really excited about the potential of it for this. But now that I had the opportunity with the team to go up close and see it, feel the passion of the people in the community, whether that was the project manager who helped showcase it to us, or the sports, uh, you know, sports fisherman that showed us it, and he was just all about it. He said this is one of his favorite things to do is tour the wind farm, and he's a sports fisherman. Like his favorite thing to do should be bringing me out to fish, and it was actually to show the windmills. Like that, that speaks to the power of this opportunity. So it, it was just an honor to be able to go out there. I'm really thankful that it got set up, and. It was the highlight of this road trip so far, and it was on a boat, which, you know, was, was not even planned for the road trip. But as we're going across the country, we still have about half of this trip left. What do you hope we see? Well, I mean, I, I hope you see that it's offshore wind is a big, big, important part of it, but it's, it's part of a whole movement, mm. I think. And Orsted, you know, I, I'm the, the present CEO of the offshore business, but we do onshore wind, onshore solar, we do storage. I already highlighted we're doing green hydrogen, we're doing green ammonia. So we see this as the future. And, you know, in, in 2009, about 85% of Orsted's business was, was fossil fuel related. Um, and really? Today, you know, 11 years, 11, 11 ish years later, it's less than 10%. Uh, so we made. We, wow, that is a fascinating a statistic. We made a massive transition from being a fossil fuel company to a, 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 we call it a green super major. And now you see Shell is in offshore wind. BP just made over a billion dollar investment in US offshore wind. So I hope that you see this tidal wave. Like I, if you're a Malcolm uh, Gladwell guy, like the tipping point, we're past the tipping point. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no debate really about should we, is it the right thing? I hope that you start to see that the tipping point is already passed. This is our future, and it's it's it's, it's massive. And you know, I, I I think 
I made the right call 10, 11 years ago when I decided to transition, transition into renewable energy. And just to come back to that, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a triple bottom line uh, kind of idea, right? You can, you can make a good living, you can do good for the environment, and uh, I forgot what the, what the third triple bottom line is, but... I think there's like seven yeah. uh, in this case, but... Yeah. But in any case, I mean, it's, you know, you don't have to compromise, basically. There's a lot of good here, so... Well, I, I couldn't have said it better. I want to just say that I'm incredibly impressed by the work you're doing here at Orsted. And I think, and now we've got a helicopter. You know, it's perfect because once the helicopter's gone, there are no more geese behind us. And there's gonna be no noise once we leave. And that's just how it is. But I, I, I but wait, I have to say one thing. Do you see the wind blowing and feel the wind? This is just raw power right here. And we're, we're where are the offshore wind turbines in this pond? Yeah. That's. I hope they're there by the time I get back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I do want to thank you for your work, and it is really exciting. You guys are investing in the future, not just you know of the environment, but of the economy. Young people should take notice because this is an amazing industry to get involved with. Super honored to have had the opportunity, and can't wait to see kind of these next projects get online and the next steps being taken here. You're right, America needs to be a leader. We can't be a follower any longer on this, and there's immense benefits to not being a follower. So let's do it. And and ACC and TCC will be there every step of the way. So I appreciate you, David. Appreciate Orsted, and I want to thank our viewers for watching another episode of the Electric Election Road Trip. I hope you enjoyed the B-roll from our awesome, awesome tour on the boat, and. I'm Honestly, check out Orsted's work, check out the movement for offshore wind because it's the electric election road trip and offshore wind has been one of the main highlights already halfway into the tour. So really thankful. Orsted, thank you again and can't wait for the next episode. Thanks everyone. Thanks Benji.